0: to the 353rd episode of the COVID Calls, a daily discussion of the COVID pandemic uh, with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Esther Chernak. I'm your guest host on this session of COVID Calls. I teach at the Drexel University Dornsife School of Public Health, where I oversee the Center for Public Health Readiness and Communication. I'm also an infectious disease-trained physician who has worked in both academia and in public health departments, and I'm delighted to be hosting today's session, which will focus on crisis and risk communication during this COVID pandemic. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID calls anytime, recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle of US of Disaster or at COVID calls. As of today, Wednesday, October 6th, 2021, there are 4,822,838 deaths from COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. And 707,079 deaths in the United States, a number that now exceeds the estimated number of fatalities that occurred during the 1918 influenza pandemic. Dr. Knowles has customarily begun each session of COVID calls by reading an obituary of a person who died of COVID 19 during this pandemic. I'll do the same today. I've chosen an obituary that highlights the challenge that misinformation has posed to containing this pandemic. This is the obituary of Marvin J. Farr. It's an online obituary written by his son, Courtney Farr. Dr. Marvin James Farr, 81, of Scott City, Kansas, passed away on December 1st, 2020, in isolation at Park Lane Nursing Home. He was preceded in death by more than 260,000 Americans infected with COVID-19. He died in a room not his own, being cared for by people dressed in confusing and frightening ways, He died with COVID-19, and his final days were harder, scarier, and lonelier than necessary. He was not surrounded by friends and family. Marvin was born on May 23, 1939, to Jim and Dorothy Farr of Modoc, Kansas. He was born into an America recovering from the Great Depression and about to face World War II, times of loss and sacrifice difficult for most of us to imagine. Americans would be asked to ration essential supplies and send their children around the world to fight and die in wars of unfathomable destruction. He died in a world where many of his fellow Americans refused to wear a piece of cloth on their face to protect one another. Marvin was a farmer and a veterinarian. He graduated from Kansas State University in 1968. His careers filled his life with an understanding of the science of life, how to nurture it, how to sustain it, and the myriad ways that life can go wrong. As a young man, he debated between studying mortuary or veterinary science, and he chose life over death. The science that guided his professional life has been disparaged and abandoned by so many of the same people who depended on his knowledge to care for their animals and to raise their food. Marvin was a religious man. He was a lay reader at St. Luke's Episcopal Church. He saw no conflict between the science of his professional life and the belief of his personal life. Each enriched the other. From religion, he especially drew on lessons of forgiveness and care. Perhaps the most important comes from the Lord's Prayer. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. He would look after those who had harmed him the deepest. A sentiment echoed by the healthcare workers struggling to do their jobs as their own communities turn against them or make their jobs harder. He would also fail those who needed him most at times as he was still human with his flaws and limits. Marvin was a man of the community. His membership in the Anthem Masonic Lodge 284 and the Scott County Shrine Club mattered to him for both the camaraderie of his brothers and for the good works that they facilitated the most visible of which was the Shriners Hospital for Children Network. Even in a social organization he chose one that centered the health and medical care of others. Marvin was a family man, both of blood and chosen family. He was preceded in death by his wife Lottie Farr, son Justin Farr, brothers Everett Farr and Howard Farr and parents. He is survived by his children Courtney Farr and Tamara Wilkins of Eudora, Kansas. Tisa Fansler of Sanford, Florida, and Scott and Tracy Burling of Scott, Louisiana, numerous grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and other family and loved ones. The New York Post wrote an article about this obituary and quoted his son. I've spent most of this year hearing people from my hometown talk about how this disease isn't real, isn't that bad, only kills old people, masks don't work, etc. The son wrote on Facebook, according to Newsweek. And because of the prevalence of those attitudes, my father's death was so much harder on him and his family and his caregivers than it should have been, which is why this obit is written as it is. Today's conversation will focus on how information and misinformation has driven this pandemic, particularly in the United States and we have two experts in public health and risk communication with us today. Dr. Vincent Cavello, director of the Center for Risk Communication, is one of the world's leading experts and practitioners on risk, high stress, and crisis communications. He's the author of more than 150 articles in scientific journals and the author-editor of more than 20 books on risk communication. Dr. Cavello is a consultant, writer, speaker, and teacher. He is a frequent keynote speaker and has conducted uh, communication skills trainings for thousands of people. Dr. Cavello has, has served as a high as a risk, high concern, mm-hmm. and crisis communications advisor to numerous public and private sector organizations, including over 400 of the 500 fortune of the of the Fortune 500 companies, and with over 200 government agencies, including the World Health Organization, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, U.S. EPA, U.S. Department. Of Defense and the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. His work has been applied nationally and globally to a wide range of topics including radiologic incidents, disease outbreaks, industrial accidents, water contamination, air pollution, food safety, climate change, physician-patient communications, and organizational change. Most recently he has worked with the 50 U.S. state health directors on their responses to questions from the media and the public on COVID-19. Our second guest is Mr. Tom Hipper. Mr. Hipper is the Associate Director of the Center for Public Health Readiness and Communication at the Drexel University-Jornside School of Public Health, where he has recently managed a CDC-funded grant project designed to address the disaster information needs of children with special healthcare challenges. Mr. Hipper has also directed several projects related to communications during public health emergencies, including uh, overseeing the creation of a library of social media messages for use by emergency response and public health spokespersons in different hazard scenarios. Mr. Hipper is teaching faculty at Drexel University where he also teaches crisis and risk communication and is a fellow of the Center for Risk Communication in New York City where he works closely on many risk communications with Dr. Vincent Cavello, who was the center's director. So, thanks to both of you for joining COVID calls this evening. I know this has been a busy time for you, and I guess I'd like to begin by asking each of you, uh, how have you been engaged in the pandemic response thus far? Uh, where have you been working? With whom have you have have with whom have you been working? And what have your experiences been so far? Uh, Dr. Covello, perhaps we'll begin with you.
1: Sure. And, uh, and Esther, could you also add that we have a third expert here, being yourself. Uh- <laughs> but uh i, I really, uh, we're having a conversation and and i i think it'd be wonderful if you would join the conversation uh, i appreciate much, that you're much more than a facilitator so uh, i i would i know and also uh i got a little chill in my back when i heard that this is the 350th call uh i think i once in my lifetime i received 350 emails in a day and I just went to sleep. Uh, I decided that this is not a day that I want to continue. So uh, well, those who have been hanging in for three hundred and fifty plus calls, I, I also um, that was very moving, uh, what you also the obituary, very moving. Uh, and I would hope that all of us might deserve an obituary such as the one that was given to Marvin and uh, and what what's what I've done? great about the obituary, if you can say great about an obituary, is that it brings to life the reality of COVID as opposed to the millions of numbers. We've got these numbers every day for the last 18 months. And after a while, they start sort of just sort of drifting right out, you know, drifting in, drifting out, oh, another another case, another case, another million cases, another person. And when you hear about a person uh, who's beloved, uh, who served um, his family, his community, his country, it, it, it really makes it come alive. So thank you for
0: starting with that. Uh, it means You're welcome. I'm, I found it very moving as well, I must say. And and I thought a great lead-in to our conversation today on information.
1: So in response to your question, um, this has probably been the most difficult. I, I've had a 40-year career in this. I started in uh, the more technical side of issues and moved into communications, thought perhaps that was where the need was. There was a gap, uh, not in developing Uh, additional scientific knowledge, but applying our scientific knowledge to the communication challenge. And I have to admit, this has been the most challenging 18 months that I can remember in the last 40 years. Um, It's almost been like a battle, um, a battle, a long, prolonged battle. And it's more than just with COVID. It's with the communications. And uh, I was thinking about this when you said you might want to ask a question about my experiences that I think of this as something like you're going into a battle. I'm going to use that analogy, visual now. You go into a battle and you have a battle plan. Uh, You have a battle plan against an enemy that you think you know well. And you have leaders and commanders that you have full trust in. Uh, So uh, that was me, January 2020. Uh, We've got a plan. uh, We know the enemy well. And uh, we've got great leaders and commanders to take us into battle. Uh, Every one of those fell away. away. Uh, The plan plan for all effective purposes was ignored. The plan had been developed starting back in SARS, uh, uh, back in the 1990s, uh, a successful battle against SARS. Uh, Then we had uh, uh, H1N1, uh, H5N1, uh, Ebola, again, successful battle. Uh, And what came out of those battles was a very detailed plan about how to deal with a pandemic, both from a technical perspective and from a communication perspective for all effective purposes that plan was ignored. Uh, And so now you're going into the battlefield saying, does anybody have a plan? Where's that plan that I know was written? Uh, In fact, we even have it archived and everyone says, what plan? There's no plan, Um, you know, and uh, that's that's a rather depressing way to enter into a battlefield. Uh, If you wanna read more about that plan, actually a a book I'd recommend is uh, Michael Lewis's book on premonition. Uh, talking about the pandemic, where he actually gives the plan. He actually pulls up the very plan that existed uh, for a pandemic, which for a large part, for for the most part, was ignored. Uh, second, you go in, you've got a, a known enemy, um, uh, coronavirus, uh, SARS. Uh, okay, uh, uh, so uh, I know you. I know what you do. I know how you're going to act. I know how you're going to respond. I know how to stop you. Uh, nope. Uh, it was much much more clever than, it's almost like that uh, golem in uh, The Hobbits, you know, whatever. Um, uh, Much more clever than you might imagine. Um, It played tricks on us almost every single month. Tom knows about this because we were writing answers to the questions about COVID, and we had to change our answers every single month. Uh, 75 questions, uh, pack it up, uh, archive it, and then the next month, every question and every answer has to be revised, both the questions and the answers. it it was a sneaky little guy uh, who kept sneaking away from us, and then we'd have to try to draw it back in. And then a third uh, was that we have skilled commanders and leaders that will lead us into this battle and lead to success. And once again, there was a a great disappointment uh, for me, and I believe for many others. Uh, we have nearly fifty hour, fifty years now of evidence about how to communicate effectively in a risk or high stress or crisis situation, uh, for the most part, ignored, for the most part, ignored, as if that literature never existed. Uh, So now we're going out into battle without a plan, uh, with a very sneaky uh, enemy, uh, much clever and intelligent than we ever imagined it to be. And number three is commanders who seem to ignore everything they either knew or should know about how to communicate about such issues to the troops. Uh, uh, you're hearing some frustration in my voice. It goes on for 18 months, and after a while you start getting exhausted. I just can't imagine what those folks in the trenches in World War II felt like, World War I felt like, you know, in those trenches, and that's exactly what the experience, I believe, and and we'll find out whether or not uh, Tom feels like he's been in the trenches as well. we'll um, I'm gonna turn it over to Tom, and uh, are, are you a fellow trench, uh, Person, (laughs) or or maybe you see more light than I have. Um, uh, uh, I am seeing some light now with vaccination, which is incredible. That's if there's a light in the tunnel, is the fact that we amazingly created uh, a vaccine, quite literally, a miracle. If there's such a thing as a miracle, I would say the vaccination was a miracle. To develop a vaccination in eight to 12 months, Uh, unheard of in history. Uh, and so that gives me some hope that perhaps humanity will survive. But Tom, it's all yours.
2: <laughs> Thanks, Vincent. Um, so, firstly, delighted to be here. Um, Esther, you and I have worked together a, a long time, and we can now check off uh, a podcast together on our bucket list. So, that's exciting. <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, <laughs> um, you, I, when I was listening to vincent i i had this flashback to you know grade school when you get back from summer and the teacher wants you to you know talk about what you did over summer vacation and there's one person in the class that you don't want to go after it's probably vincent Cavello for me um <laughs> it, it's a you know tough act to follow uh, you can tell I've from that no CV no, no. that he's a, a busy guy um but yeah it's been a been a busy stretch uh for me as well as I, I know it has been for pretty much everyone that I know in in public health and and healthcare it's been a it's been a rough stretch I think I think the the trench metaphor is is quite apt um, I hope that while I I absolutely share those frustrations uh, I hope that one of the things that can come out of today is you know some some little degree of optimism, if if we'll allow it, and and you know maybe some strategies for going forward, so that we we learn from uh, a lot of what's transpired, uh, which as you point out is largely negative. I worked really hard to try to come up with some good things that we can build on, and and I'd love to you know look forward to discussing today some of what we need to do to make sure this this doesn't play out the same way again. And I will say uh, I'm. I feel like, a, I feel like one of those callers, uh, into a radio show. I feel, you know, when they say first time, long time, I, I'm, I'm kind of shell shocked here cause I've tuned into a lot of COVID calls and now here I am on it. And <laughs> within two minutes of talking, I'm already uh, on the verge of oversharing, but I just want to say as a, what I hope is a bit of an inspiration to, uh, to folks who are working in public health and are are just kind of over it, um, it has. I share Vincent's sentiment that it's been a rough nineteen or so months. No question about it. This has easily been the most stressful stretch of my professional life. But I'm I'm pleased to say that uh, I've I've honestly never been more sure that I picked the right field than than I am right now. Um, and to to just you know, double down on that. Um, I actually have COVID for me was was what finally um, caused me to, to decide that it's time to get a doctorate. So I, I actually just started a doctoral program in public health. And and my aim is to focus on misinformation and vaccine hesitancy and, and you know, trying to solve some of these problems that we're going to get into tonight. So um, hopefully, that's that's proof that I'm not just going to do this podcast and then run for the hills and never think of risk communication again. I'm, I'm in it for the long haul. All
1: right. Tom, can you, uh, can you just share what, what's your, since Esther asked her about her experience when I would call you up every month and say, we have to start all over again with these questions <laughs> and answers. Uh, and, and I did that, uh, eight months in a row. And I said, uh, throw out the old document. Let's start from scratch. Uh, how did you feel? I actually, I don't think I ever asked you about your emotional response to that. You Intellectually, you were up to the task. I, I think I sometimes had to call you at two o'clock in the morning and say, uh, we got to start all over again. Uh, this is, uh, uh, everything that we did before uh, has changed. Uh, changing landscape, changing information, changing science, changing leadership. Um, uh, I don't think I ever asked you what, you what your experience was of that.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, it- it was uh, an interesting experience for sure. I, I think that for me, it's, it's been really nice to, um, to feel like I've had so many opportunities to, to be engaged with this response. Uh, you know, you, you spend, you spend so much time, um, reading and, 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 you know, I, I do a lot of teaching and training in, in risk and crisis communication and you're, you're learning from you know, previous events and, and, um, thinking through the best practices and it's I, I think this the the process that you're referring to where we were continually updating and starting over based on what we were hearing from different communities and, and uh, you know adjusting to the latest information I, it was no question it was exhausting and for I think for both of us just yet another thing that that we were doing at the time and so obviously that was tough but I think also really, really need to um, to have those opportunities to to actually implement some of those best practices that we're always talking about. And right. I, I love that it wasn't a static document, and we didn't just you know d- you know wipe our hands clean and call it a day, but that we were constantly going back to the drawing board on what what are communities wondering about what are their concerns? what are their questions now? Uh, how can we refine the messaging so that it's addressing those things? Right. So,
1: yeah. I think I felt good about uh, what you just what I just heard from you was that uh, it reminded me uh, a few years ago I visited Monticello uh, and uh, supposedly Jefferson tore down Monticello uh, 23 times according to the docent um, and started over again in order to uh, get a perfect architecture Um, and uh, I said this to my wife also, I said, you know, he he tore down his house 23 times in order to rebuild it. He, he also died broke as well. Um, and I said, uh, uh, you know, this is a little bit like COVID, you know, we have to tear it down and start all over again. But Esther, can I ask you, what's your experience with the university? You had to also go through the same uh, experiences uh, in your position and, and a very important position at the university because you are the source of information about COVID and all these changes must have affected you and your experience with the faculty members, with students, do you, do you mind if I ask you what your experience has been with COVID?
0: Yeah, um, so it's been interesting. Um, I'd say at Drexel, Drexel worked pretty quickly to coordinate committees of folks to kind of deal address the operational changes. And certainly early on in the pandemic, like all universities, we pivoted pretty quickly to online learning, to virtual learning, uh, emptied out the campus, identified who was essential, who wasn't. And, you know, um, pretty quickly the university, I think, in its wisdom gathered together some of the public health and medical leadership and convened kind of a science advisory committee, which I have the honor of chairing. But we meet on a regular basis and kind of Mm -hmm. address the the thorny, challenging policy questions around how to reopen the campus, what should our policy be about residential life, about working in classrooms, about vaccines, about masks, about testing. And we're lucky, I think, at Drexel, because we have a really strong school of public health and a strong medical school and uh, strong laboratorians within our clinical facilities and could really and strong nursing school. And we could sort of pull together public health and medical folks um, who were, I think, aggressive around uh, addressing the accommodations that had to happen during the pandemic. And I think that's been helpful. And I think the university's administration really uh, took what we recommended pretty seriously. We were among the very first universities to recommend and a mask mand- um, um, a vaccine mandate right. and that followed pretty quickly by it with a mask mandate when we, it was sort of clear that there were still transmission issues in the context of highly vaccinated populations so I think it's actually gone pretty well I think that the university pivoted mm-hmm. quickly it's pivoted back now to face-to-face education we're still I think like everyone else trying to figure out the sweet spot between virtual and in-person, right interactions, education, etc., cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for the most part, people have wanted to be a part of response. I and mean, we've coordinated with our local health department. Uh, we've coordinated with private sector actors, including local pharmacies, to make sure we had access to vaccines on campus. Uh, Tom had a major role in helping us develop web-based content, particularly early on in the pandemic, when we were hard pressed to know what to say. We figured out what to say uh, to, the, to the community. And now we're dealing with. Our return to campus and the resumption of in-face, you know, in-person learning and dealing with some hesitancy on the part of students and faculty. But for the most part, I think students are thrilled to be back on campus. Faculty, I think, are seeing learning. I like to think that we've done this safely. And that they're okay being back on campus safely. So I think it's actually gone pretty well. I think we had a, an incident command based model in terms of uh, pandemic coordinator, Dr. Marla Gold, who also happens to be an infectious disease physician. I think that has been helpful. Um, and I th- so I think overall, I think the University at Drexel has handled this pretty well. It's been super busy. It's not like any of us have been relieved of our teaching and research <laughs> and service responsibilities on top of this. Um, but I think I think as Tom would say you know, this is who we are and what we do. And now is the time for us to to do this work, um, whether it's in the community at large or at Drexel, et cetera.
1: So Esther, you asked about experience. Uh, Tom, maybe Esther also, if you, um, the most difficult question I've been facing for the last, I guess it's 19 months now, is um, why do you keep changing your mind? Uh, Why do you, uh, you know, uh, you say one thing and then the next day you say something else. Uh, How am I supposed to trust you when you yourself don't even know what to say in response to a question such as the ones, the question of the day today, you know, um, can I get uh, a booster uh, with uh, Moderna if I had the Pfizer Uh, or if I had the Johnson and Johnson, can I take the Pfizer, the Moderna booster Uh, or if I had the Johnson and Johnson, should I shift to the Pfizer and Moderna so I can get a booster. Um, I don't know.
0: Think, and I'd be curious to know what Tom thinks about this that um, those are huge challenges. I think that within the microcosm of our university community, for the most part, you know, we've been upfront and we've tried to be upfront and transparent about what we know and what we don't know. And we haven't had a lot of people questioning the, the various pivots uh, that we might have had to make in terms of recommendations. I think the toughest one was probably when we said, Come on back to campus, everybody's vaccinated, it's safe. Ooh, Please wear a mask, don't take it off. Uh (laughs) I think that was the hardest one. Um, I know Tom has been on the Philadelphia uh, Vaccine Advisory Committee and has had a little bit of a a way to inform some of the more more public communications, but how would you regard uh, the challenges with with shifting opinions and shifting recommendations?
1: And and Tom, can you also address the question, when you respond to that question, like what should I do about a booster with, we're waiting for the data to come in. Um, right what
2: yeah and you know i think so much of of covid has been unique in many respects whether it's as vincent alluded to um some of the very real and unique leadership challenges of our uh, you know the the administration breaking every rule in the book at the outset um, or you think about this infodemic environment that we're currently in uh, where we've just just have unprecedented amounts of information that we're dealing with both accurate and, and many times inaccurate information. And so there's, there's obviously unique challenges to this. This isn't the first time that we've seen um, a novel pathogen that we're kind of understanding as we go. I, I, would, I would argue that right. it, this is a, a, a challenge that we face in most crises where we don't have all the answers we want early on. And that's a, obviously a really difficult problem to have when, when people want certainty and they want answers. Right. But I, I think one of the things that that I, I didn't see nearly enough of early on, and, and you know you could make the case that we, we are still not doing enough of this, is I think it just under, underscores how vital it is to be upfront about uncertainty at the outset of a crisis. And to really, you, you can't say that enough as you continue through that. This notion that we are changing our minds on the surface seems like a bad thing it, it I think take a you think about that for a second and maybe you think well these people obviously don't know what they're doing when in fact uh, we could we should be framing this right. changing of our minds as a positive thing that's how science works right. that's yes. how a dedicated uh, you know public health workforce deals with a crisis we learn as we go and as soon as we learn new things we give you the latest information yeah. and I think I, I think framing this issue of uncertainty is a, is a really, really important one. And I also think it's okay to say to people that it's frustrating that we keep changing guidance. You know, we told you that would that was going to happen. And it did. And we get that that's frustrating. And just, you know, having a human element to, to that, I think, verbalizing how frustrating that can be, is also an important aspect of communicating in these uncertain times. But from my vantage point, that's a good thing. The fact that, that, you know, we were just to take, go back to that, you know, message mapping example, the fact that we were starting from scratch so often meant we were, you know, basing things off of the latest questions and the latest information. And and I think if you frame it that way, people realize, well, that's actually what I want. That's what I want from, from my experts. And I, I think sometimes we just, we don't, Put that at the forefront, and and it, it hurts us because without saying that, it, it can look like we're all over the place.
1: Yeah, I you know when you were talking, Tom, it reminded me um, at the and I said that you would think that after many battles that we're we're ready to do battle with COVID, and it reminded me of um, the uh, the director of CDC during pandemic, uh, the pandemic influenza. Uh, that was uh, Dr. Richard Besser, and. Mm-hmm. When you were talking, it reminded me that how he started the conversation with America. Uh, first thing he did was communicated his humanity. Uh, Is listening. Um, we hear you. Uh, you're upset. You're scared. We're concerned as well. Uh, and you heard that refrain: the, the people want to know that you care before they care what you know. And the first thing he said: uh, he, he's now the head of the uh, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and. Uh, he also was a, a lead spokesperson for a major network. And uh, he followed that with a statement about uncertainty. Uh, I was looking at that film uh, of his first press conference, and he said, what we say to you today may change tomorrow. That was a shock, I think, for most people who were listening. To it. What we say to you today about the pandemic may change tomorrow. Uh, he was perfectly transparent about the fact that uh, that the information that science is a moving uh, 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 is it, a movement. It's it's a process, uh, not a finality. And he, he created that as the sort of like tilling the soil. Uh, he created his humanity, his empathy, his caring, his listening. He created expectations related to facts uh, uh, at the very beginning. And I think that also helped us to get through that pandemic influenza, uh, which eventually led to that plane, which I said was largely... Yeah. You know, so uh,
0: Vincent, think- I'm curious, what... Why was the plan ignored? Um,
1: uh, well, Tom just
0: uh, <laughs> so, um, were you going to were I, you going to chime in
1: about? But nonetheless, it's um, I, I believe there's been many people who have said it is that there were flaws in leadership, flaws in leadership, uh, where politics uh, played a typically plays a role in public health. Uh, it's it's almost impossible to to separate the two. They really are like, in some ways. Uh, Together, together in a knot, uh, a knot that sometimes has to be unraveled and put back together. That knot though was so unraveled at the beginning of pandemic, uh, the the uh, our COVID pandemic, uh, that repairing the damage, and it goes back to first impressions, lasting impressions. Uh, one of the key principles of risk communication, uh, first impressions or lasting impressions. You don't get a second chance to make a first impression as are last impressions. And when you start, for example, with the wrong foot forward, uh, it's going to go away. Uh, it's going to go away like the, the cold um, uh, where there was a lack of attention to it, recognizing, uh, I, I think there's something called hubris involved here. You know, we beat you past coronavirus. We beat you in SARS. We beat you in H1N. We're going to beat you again. There's, there's nothing very special. You know, we're, we're practiced veterans at dealing with this type of stuff as opposed to trying to learn from the past and apply it to the future. Those mistakes, I, I believe, just started the, the us on a downhill slide that was very difficult to recover from. Uh,
2: yeah, uh, I, I completely agree. I mean, I think the uh, Dr. Besser example at the outset of H1N1 is a, exactly the kind of thing that I'm that I'm talking about, and uh, it makes it all the more frustrating because I, I think you could point to Zika um, a few years back as well as another example where I think. I think the tone from CDC was was it was very clear that uh, we're we, we have we know you have a lot of questions that we don't yet have answers to and and right. we're working on that behind the scenes and that means things are going to change and so it it in some ways as a as a risk communicator it it was it made following how we handled COVID even more difficult to to watch transpire because you 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 saw in the very early stages of this you saw folks at CDC trying to do some of these things and trying to set that tone and trying to play by the the rule book we keep going back to. And then you watched it get squashed or undermined or directly contradicted. And so, you know, we know how to do these things. They're difficult to do. um, But we we have a rule book that that comes, that is based on, you know, learning the hard way, how how to do these things, how not to do them. And, And we, we largely threw that out. And I think, the, the first phase of the mistakes from COVID, no, without question stem from from leadership throwing the book away.
1: Yeah, the, uh, the notion that we, when I'm just thinking back at the, you know I'm trying to go back to January, February, 2020, um, and you also pointed to the other, it's one thing to be uncertain in science, another to have contradictory statements made uh, by equally prominent scientists. Or ones for which it's difficult for the public to determine who should I trust. This person has great credentials; they have all these letters after the name. This person uh, has all these letters after the name, and they're saying different things about, for example, wearing a mask. Uh, and and then and that relates to the other change, which also Esther, when you asked me about the experience, is that we're working against a, a very changed landscape. Um, if I use the battle analogy, you're going into battle, but also uh, the battlefield has changed. Um, and that also makes it more difficult. The battlefield, number one, is the loss of trust uh, in authorities, which was uh, expanded exponentially at the very beginning of COVID. Uh, loss of trust in authorities and experts. How do you operate when there's a, a fundamental hemorrhaging of trust in, uh, in authorities and experts? The second is the uh, where people go for information. Uh, that's a changed landscape. Uh, when we dealt with SARS and Ebola and Zika, et cetera, um, most people, for example, went to CDC uh, for the information about Zika and, you know, should I wear insect repellent and should I uh, get screens for my windows, et cetera, um, which insects repellent. Uh, the CDC was in fact the source of information and it became uh, the source, not just a source, the source of information uh, with very few contradictions except for some some very, what were perceived as uh, extreme views. And then we have this changed landscape with COVID, which is, uh uh, social media sites had equal amount, in fact, sometimes dominated the discussion about COVID uh, throughout the last 19 months. And and the third change is, uh, is the one that is a little more insidious. Um, uh, so we have the change in landscape in terms of, number one, loss of trust. Number two is the change in landscape caused by uh, where people get information. And and what you pointed at is misinformation. Uh, that changed landscape. Uh, Never in my career have I seen misinformation uh, carry the day so much uh, in terms of people's decision-making. It's one thing that they go other places, but they'll say those places are not credible, uh, not trustworthy. But but for example, very early in COVID, for example, I I had someone who was uh, doing some uh, carpentry work at at my house, and he said, uh, Vincent, I know you know a lot about COVID, so... uh, I just read that the best way to get rid of the virus is to put a hair dryer up my nose, turn it on high, uh, and it'll kill all the germs. Um, what do you think? Uh, I, 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 I was in a state of shock. Uh, put a hair dryer up your nose on high beam. Yes, it will kill the germs. <laughs> it will. There, a, there is a fact embedded there somewhere deep in, in what was said. Uh, The first thing I did, and what you did also, Tom, also I liked, when you dealt with the issue of uncertainty, instead of saying, I don't know, you said, what we do know is. Uh, You use one of the fundamental principles of risk communication, which is start with what you know, get some credit for something um, before you start admitting to uncertainty that we do know, for example, that this is dangerous. We do know X, Y, Z. Uh, as opposed to something and uh, so that changed landscape and but uh, can I ask uh, esther that changed landscape I assume that trust also affected you at the university um, a where students go for information changed places number two loss of trust in in the traditional experts and authorities on the issues and the third is spread of misinformation um, and which is you know that Tom used the term that's used by who infodemic infodemic. Um, and uh, if anyone uses social media, it's students um, uh, as a way by which to acquire information. I, I assume you've had to deal with that challenge. You've had to deal with that challenge.
0: A little bit, I think, you know, again, I think our community is a little bit different. I think we're a university. I think uh, there's, you know, certainly among students and faculty, uh, It's a pretty educated community. Um, I think, you know, so I think there's a little bit less distrust, but there's certainly a a percentage of folks who uh, get their information from Facebook. And, you know, and so, you know, we talk about Facebook. This is the week to talk about Facebook and the increased scrutiny that on Facebook now is a communications tool. Is there a way for risk communicators to cope with this flooding of social media platforms with misinformation? Is it, it, have we, transcended the be first, be right, be credible. Is it too hard to do that in the, in the world where these channels uh, are so voluminous? And they're harnessed by, by, you know, Peter Hotez talks about anti-science aggression in the right. US. He's the pediatric infectious disease physician who's the dean at Baylor. He's written eloquently about this uh, anti-science aggression, um, right. both you know, politically motivated, well-funded, um, and social media amplifies that aggression, is, is there a way to apply the uh, the old-fashioned principles to this new sure. landscape? Right, so Esther, for those
1: who were not, you, it's wonderful that you remember those three messages from uh, the-
0: It's my years uh, of working with Tom. <laughs>
1: <laughs> be first, be right, uh, and just to remind everyone, the third message- Yeah, third, be credible. Be credible, right. Um, and uh, A, I love it, the fact that it's three messages, it's short, clear, um, And I would argue that's the beginning of responding to misinformation is that we are, we keep what we want to say initially uh, clear, concise, uh, easily understood, and then build up the complexity based on the nature of the audience we have. Uh, And if there's anyone who's an expert on social media, it's Tom, by the way. Um, Tom, I've attended Tom's lectures on social media and I took voluminous notes. The luminous notes on what Tom had to say so uh, Tom how do you how do you build how do you deal with the challenge and the existing challenge of social media particularly as a source of misinformation
2: yeah so how, how much longer do we have We've got three hours <laughs> uh, so I I have I have lots of thoughts on this um, but I guess the first thing I would say is I you know I just going back to the the principles you mentioned Esther I, I certainly don't see those as our solution to you know fundamentally solving this misinformation problem that we have, I think the the reason that I think those things are still so important though is I I think it just undermines this this phenomenon with risk communication that it's uh, it's necessary but not sufficient. So good communication, you know, if we stick to the the those rules we keep coming back to and do those things effectively. That's not going to suddenly make up for a, a flawed response, or it's it's not going to solve the problem of insufficient, uh, you know, surveillance data, or, or or solve some of the systemic problems we have with our public health system, for example. But when you don't do those things, it makes this problem even harder. And you know what what Vincent touched on about the 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 problem with uh, mixed messages from sources that are supposed to be on the same team that leads to further mistrust and it, it 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 forces people to or it encourages them rather to to go look elsewhere for their information and you couple that with the sheer number of places you can go for for information and and you have this sort of perfect storm that that quickly gets out of control so I don't think it's it's necessarily the solution, but I would argue we've we've seen firsthand the past 18 months that when you get away from those, it makes an already difficult job harder. Now, as far as how we can start to think about what do we do here, I, honestly, I I think this issue of dealing with you know these infodemics, this this rampant problem of misinformation, the attack on science, I you could make a really compelling case that you know, I would put this up there with Climate change uh, as these systemic crises that are—it's going to take systemic approaches to addressing. Do I think effective risk communication and getting back to uh, playing by these rules so we can start to engender more trust is a part of that? Absolutely. Um, but you know, this is going to take a pretty wide range of of approaches here. And you know, Esther, you mentioned it's it's. It's been a big week for um, for Facebook and things like algorithms. I think that's a that's a part of this. That, uh, one of my one of the best tweets I saw all week. I, I forget the account that it came from, but it was something like, "All right, guys, Facebook's down. Let's quickly revive democracy and get everyone vaccinated." And that that rang true for me a bit because it sometimes feels like we are. I mean, we we the bottom line is uh, Facebook. Uh, and and some of these other accounts have huge usership, and behind the scenes, they've got algorithms that are not at all focused on connecting people with accurate information. They're correct. They're they're all about getting clicks and eyeballs. And what better? Uh, we know a lot of the things that get eyeballs, and that, that are, are things that uh, things like conspiracy theories uh, or false information that. Generates uh, emotions in people. That's that's what that's what people want to look at, and 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 so, I think no question that part of this is is thinking about this in a systemic way, and thinking about how those platforms can be refined so that they're not contributing uh, to this problem. But the reality is this this problem of of misinformation um, or even disinformation. If we think about right. active bad actors who are purposefully spreading incorrect information and, and for great personal gain, by the way, I don't think we talk enough about how, how much there's a, a really, you know, every, there's always this concern around trust in government and Bill Gates and this and that we don't talk enough about the, the select few characters out there who are the source of such a high percentage of this disinformation who are living they are they are making very lucrative careers out of spreading this stuff, um, and and so this this movement of the spread of misinformation has kind of been boiling under the surface for quite some time. And it's I, I hope that one of the legacies of COVID, I, I I hope it it finally has implications for getting back to properly funding public health. Number one, um, but but I also hope this is this is our moment where we realize that. This is a systemic problem that we need to start tackling in a systemic evidence based way. And the good news is I think some of those efforts are currently underway. There's some really interesting work being done, but it's going to take lots of different approaches to to tackle this. And if we don't COVID's it's going to be more of the same going forward. We're going to have this every time, every time there's this void there's high concern and there's high levels of uncertainty. It's the perfect breeding ground for the spread of misinformation.
1: Yeah. Tom, I love it that you brought up uh, follow the money. Um, I I don't hear that often. Um, And the old expression, uh, there is a lot of money to be made by misinformation or even disinformation. I I still remember an experience I had early in my career where I I happened to be uh, at a conference where there was another conference going on uh, uh, sponsored by the tobacco industry. And so I popped in and sat in the back row and I listened to their research on how to persuade people to smoke. And I was totally blown away. Uh, I said, why don't you publish this stuff? This is incredible. How to influence, uh, how to build trust, how to influence people, how to uh, influence not just their attitudes, but their behaviors. Uh, why didn't you share this with the world? We could make a, a world difference. And the answer was money. <laughs> um, um, there's a lot of money to be made in tobacco. Um, if we can, number one, dominate the, the conversation, um, for example, through advertising, and now we have, for example, social media. If we can dominate, for example, people's attitudes and beliefs or, or raise questions about trust, uh, and then we have all these tools of persuasion that were first identified by Aristotle 2,000 years ago um, that are part of our rule book, too, but not, not half as developed as they had. Good, good news. I, I do like to share good news. The research literature on on how to, number one, build trust uh, in a legitimate way, Uh, number two, how to influence attitudes and how to influence behaviors has exponentially increased within the last 20 to 30 years. Uh, uh, There's been a huge flood of interest in how do we communicate well in a high stress, high concern, high pressure environment. Uh, And that makes me feel good because there's quite literally, I think we... Tom, we shared this. I think there's nearly 8,000 articles and 2,000 books in scientific publications uh, talking about how to build trust. These are the three goals. Why why do we do this? Number one, we want to build trust, going back to be credible. Uh, We want to inform people so they have the knowledge to make a wise, informed decision. And we want to influence their attitudes and behaviors uh, in the appropriate way. Uh, There's been a huge, Growth in that literature over the past twenty to thirty years, and I know you cover that in your course. Uh, you cover that literature, which is astounding that you could even cover eight thousand articles and two thousand books in a semester. Um, I, I left Columbia and Brown University some time ago, and I really would not like to teach what you teach. <laughs>
0: but how do we enlist then the big media outlets the social media companies who whose business model depends on the divisiveness and the um polarization you know the political polarization of our country in in the in the spirit of uh if you know informing human behavior in ways that are positive and productive and life-saving. I mean, you listen to Fox News and it's just remarkable, some of the stuff that you can hear that is absolutely, it's a, you know, it, it's all about, how, you know, how to get COVID and how to get sick. Um, and I remember seeing interviews with people, you know, who who got COVID and who were not vaccinated and their comments were, well, we didn't think we needed to get vaccinated. We're good conservatives. We're good, strong conservatives. So that decision about vaccine declination was tied to their political identity. And, and these big, media outlets and platforms and and even the social media companies they benefit from that how do we how do we address that it's great to have the research how do we use it
2: (laughs) well I I hope that you know uh, things like like this whistleblower um, testimony this week uh, my hope is that you know that that puts some pressure on companies like Facebook to um, you know to sort of get on board with the fact that their their algorithms are fundamentally creating great societal harm. Uh, so I think I think that's one that's one pressure point. Um, I, but you know, I think it's important too. I, I feel pretty strongly about the fact that we obviously have to there there are these problems with with the system, with these companies and the way that media outlets cover these issues. I, I don't see incredibly easy solutions there. And I also, I don't think that the solution is just like, all right, if we get, if we fix Facebook, we'll, we'll be okay. It's obviously contributing to the problem, but mm-hmm. this underlying problem of, of misinformation and how it spreads wouldn't just magically disappear if we took care of that. And I think some of the other things that I would like to see us doing is um, implementing more training really across the board, both for individuals, I mean, I think we could do a better job of teaching science literacy um, and media literacy in, in schools. Uh, we could, uh, you know, help help inoculate people, just as a vaccine inoculates you to a virus. You can. We have great evidence that that um, spending just a little bit of time helping people understand the the various tactics that are used to to hoodwink them, uh, you can inoculate them against bad information, you can make them more savvy consumers. We've all had to adjust the last decade to a radically different information provision landscape. And, and we haven't caught up with how to help people use those responsibly. And and we, we need to step up our game there we need to help people understand uh, that, you know, you need to to Stop and consider the source before you share. I'd also love to see more training of trusted sources so that they know how to engage with people and put good information out there. Um, where's our Where's our science communication training for physicians? Uh, it's It's hard enough. You're You're lucky in in medical school if if you get a a basic doctor patient communication 101 class as part of your training where where are where are we how can we train our physicians so that they can actively use these platforms to put out good information in engaging ways create shareable content that actually gets passed around and viewed right. we got to put more good information out there same thing with academia we 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 there's a great growing body of science communication evidence that uh, we we know how to do this stuff effectively and and that's part mm-hmm. of taking on this bad information is putting more good out there. Same thing with with journalists. Um, There's some there's some great groups out there that I I think are uh, one that comes to mind is a a group called First Draft.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh,
2: It's a great, great resource to be aware of if you're interested in the misinformation space. But their primary audience is actually journalists and helping them cover issues in in a more objective, scientific way but in a way that embodies some of these risk communication principles we've been talking about. So I think all of those things uh, are, are part of this very messy problem that isn't going away anytime soon. But the notion that we're stuck and there's nothing we can do and we're just going to get consumed by this, I, I don't think that's true either.
1: Right. Tom, when you were speaking, uh, it reminded me that how different the the response of journalism was uh, following 9-11, where the new threat uh, and anthrax, this is 2001, where the journalism community actually quite came quite together in terms of of their responsibilities in reporting about bioterrorism. Uh, And uh, uh, they had special websites to help journalists understand the technology, the terms being used. Uh, They had conferences just focused on how do we report in a responsible way about bioterrorism. And, and I think we got through that very difficult time in our, in our history. Uh, they were very much on board, uh, recognizing they have responsibilities, um, uh, they ratings money, et cetera, at the same time to, to sharing, um, credible fat, first fast information. The other thing that reminded me is, uh, one of my heroes, uh, newest heroes is, uh, Prime Minister Ardherm from New Zealand. Uh, I've been tracking her from the very beginning uh, and I'm writing a very very extensive case study related to, um, and her motto has been hit hard, hit fast, hit often. Uh, And she was largely talking about the operational side of things. Um, You get a COVID case, you hit it hard, you hit it fast, and you hit it over and over again until it goes away. But she also recognized the importance of, of trust uh, she started introducing these terms to the population, and they have an advantage in New Zealand. I'm not going to un- say it was, you know, they don't have a lot of advantage. It's nice to be an island nation in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, uh, we, the fact that she would start off, she would have these breakfast meetings where she was dressed in a sweatshirt. Uh, and she would have the experts there talking about, well, what does it mean to be hit hard? What does it mean when we say hit fast? What does it mean when we hit often? And she would have those experts at her breakfast table as if you were just sitting together with the prime minister of a country. Uh, And she created not just the the knowledge, but she created her humanity at the same time. And if we did the same thing with information, uh, uh, misinformation, we hit hard, we hit fast, and we hit often. Um, using that rule book, because, again, you, we do have a rule book, uh, and which has been, unfortunately, largely ignored, uh, that I, I believe we have a chance. Um, the other thing I wanted to say is that I, I'm recognizing the limits of communication. There's only so far we can take it in terms of of increasing people's knowledge, especially when we have a noisy involvement with all this co- competition. And uh, it reminded me of uh, one of the first communication uh, challenges that I worked on as a, a young professor on was seatbelts. Um, first problem we had is that people weren't telling us the truth about their use of seatbelts. Um, uh, we asked how many people were using seatbelts and they said, everybody said they were using seatbelts. Then we stood on the top of highways and watched down to see how many people had the seatbelt on. It was 12.1%. Um, then after a couple of years of, of extensive communication efforts, uh, s- buckle up for sa- safety, buckle up, I don't sing very well, but nonetheless, it went up from 12.1 to 12.3. Um, there are limits to how far you can take communication, uh, and uh, that means regulations, mandates. Uh, there are points that you know where we try our best to influence and persuade through communications, and at a certain point, we have to fall back on Aristotle's appeals to authority. Um, if logic doesn't work, if emotion doesn't work, we still have appeals to authority, which are regulations and mandates, and I believe that's where we are, perhaps, in America today.
0: I um, think so too. I do. I just want to ask. I want to keep an eye on the clock and I, be respectful of your time. I guess as a closing for each of you, where now? You know, I mean, we have a new administration. We have new leadership. Um, I know you're both involved in various ways in providing, input and advice. Uh, What do you tell the folks in charge now uh, with respect to uh, strategies related to communications? How do we deal with that recalcitrant uh, part of the population that won't get vaccinated? Maybe it's through mandates, but from a communication perspective, what should we be doing now? Is there a way to make up for the sins of the last 20 months? Is there a way to switch gears or are we stuck with with this chaos?
1: Forgive us our trespasses, right? Exactly. <laughs> right. Um, I read that beginning. I'll say something very quickly, and that is one, number one is, um, I'll go back to that battlefield analogy, is number one is um, this is a, a major battle that we're fighting. Um, and uh, just because we've succeeded in the past, so we have to hit hard fast, hit fast and hit often. I would also argue that we have to train our leaders uh, uh, and leaders are not, I don't mean political leaders. Uh, I don't mean public health leaders, I mean, meaning, for example, uh, leaders, you're at a dinner table, you're a leader you're, you're when you're trying to influence people, for example, about vaccination. So we have to train our leadership and don't think of leadership as, you know, uh, at the very top but also we're each a leader in terms of how we influence others our children or our, our families our friends and family that we all play that critical role uh so i'll just stop there i'll just stop there uh let, let's let's go to battle with the plan let's go to battle uh recognizing that we've got a tough enemy and let's go to battle um recognizing that we've got a toolbox that we should be should be following. thanks tom do
0: you want to yeah.
2: final thoughts so so i guess i guess my my sort of call to action for uh, for the big wigs is is to number one i guess fund public health properly i'm I'm, mm. I'm my entire public health career i think i've i think the the basic takeaway from every conference i've attended is to do more with less every year
0: mm.
2: and i think i think we've seen i think the latest example is this um, the, the decision about and the communication around uh, the booster doses and mm-hmm. who should get them and mm. what that decision is based on. And I think among other things, one of my takeaways there is when when you don't have a, a robust uh, public health surveillance system that, that gives right. you the, the information and the data you need to make tough policy decisions, it's really hard to right to convey those decisions and justify them and explain them, which is the very things that build trust in the people who are listening to, to folks in public health. So I think I that's that. that's one major thing. I, I, I wanna end though with something that is a more of a, a personal call to action because again not a not a systemic solution to any of this but something that i've been struggling with personally um, with with friends and family that are still very hesitant about the vaccine and I, so I've been spending a lot of time thinking about how to get through to, to folks who just are you know um, very much opposed to this or or from an ideological standpoint we just don't see eye to eye and i want to i want to preface all this by saying that, I, I acknowledge that compassion fatigue is real. I I know that everyone, everyone I know in public health and medicine who's never worked harder, never been more stressed. I, I've heard so many personal accounts of of physicians that I know who are just so yeah. sick of caring for people who are ignoring this this wonderful uh, vaccine that we have and and I, I want to acknowledge how incredibly frustrating that is and how incredibly unfair it is that it should still be on us who are following the rules and following the science to take a step back and empathize with folks who don't agree with us. but i I, I can't with all that being said, as unfair as that is, we have to keep having these conversations. We have to listen, we have to, um find some common grounds with folks and and not lose that empathy you can do that by finding you know finding common ground like sharing in people's even if we don't see eye to eye on much these days we can talk about our frustration with all the uncertainty or the speed of the science or how difficult it can feel to know where to go for more information um I, i i had this heard this wonderful tip recently um where, where the suggestion was in, you know, in terms of how to deal with someone who is really hesitant, Um, ask them on a scale of zero to 10, where do you land on the getting vaccinated front? And the bottom line is, if the answer isn't zero, ask why and build on that. It's a great, great tip to sort of get some insight into, into you know, what you can build on and, and gradually moving that person toward maybe um, you know, considering getting vaccinated. If it's a zero, by the way, move on. Okay, there, there is definitely a, there's an anti-vaccine faction out there that it's just not worth your time, frankly. But I just want to implore people that you know, we, we need to, um, we need to have these conversations. We, as frustrating as it is, we can't give up on that. We need to get engaged online you don't have to have a huge following on social media to to have an audience um it, even if it isn't a big one that's okay hardcore anti-vaxxers are not your target audience um but the the public is people who follow you are and we need more people uh again creating telling their stories their their, their positive stories and and creating shareable content and one group that's doing a wonderful job with this this is actually a it's a group you can check out if you're interested in this space, it's also a hashtag, it's Science Up First. It's led by uh, a guy by the name of Timothy Caulfield. He's a, a leader in this misinformation space, but this group is is actively taking on this very problem we've been talking about and they're developing lots of great shareable resources and, and good best practices for how we can contribute in our own small way to to trying to solve this problem. So I just wanted to I wanted to leave on an no actionable note so that no. I feel like if you're not careful, these conversations, uh, especially in the communication space, can can feel very doom and gloomy. So hopefully that's a, a nice note to end on.
1: Tom, I'm I'm a recruit. Uh uh sign, <laughs> me, up, sign me up. Listening, understanding, caring, sharing, I like it. <laughs> Will do. Good.
0: Well, thanks to both of you for this really interesting and informative conversation. I, I would uh, underscore Tom's comment about investing in public health. Maybe it's time to say do more with more. We could actually do more about with more. Um, but thanks to both of you, Dr. Covello, uh, Tom Hipper, thank you so much. This was really a terrific conversation and a really important one. I'm sure that there'll be a part two in the future sometime mm. soon. There's uh, still much to discuss. Thank you, and Esther. thanks to Scott Knowles for letting me host uh, this session. Holy it's awesome. been very enjoyable. I hope to come Can back. Can we give applause
1: time. to Esther and Scott? Thank you so much for <laughs> recording us.
2: Yeah, thanks for having us.
0: Good. Thanks for being here.